Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, if you would, please do open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And we continue this morning with his well-known parable of the soils. We've been making our way through the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we come to this very important section. As I said last time, it contains a message that applies to every single person. And because every single person who has ever lived finds himself being perfectly described within this passage... In fact, no matter who you are or what you believe, these words here of Jesus describe the current state of your heart this morning. There is no person found outside of this passage. And so, as I mentioned last time, whether you agree here with Jesus' words or not, all of us belong in one of these categories. This is, again, that famous parable of the sower. A more apt title might be something like the parable of the soils. As we saw last time, these soils represent the various states of the human heart and various responses to the gospel. And so regardless of who you are, this is a passage describing what is truly within you. And so before we get into it, let me read these familiar words to you. Again, this is chapter 8, and we will be in verses 11 through 13 this morning. But let me set the context for you by beginning in verse 4 and reading through the entire section. This is the record of Jesus' ministry and words, as recorded by Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, And when a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. He said, The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and... As soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant, And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but these have no firm root, and so they believe for a while, but in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked out with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity." But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. As you begin to examine um, any local church, it doesn't take long to figure out that there are many different kinds of professing Christians, key word there being professing. This is true within the church at large, but certainly true within any given local church. It has always been curious to me that within a single local church, you can have on the one hand those who appear passionate and sold out for the cause of the gospel. They seem to work hard at conforming their lives increasingly toward the word of God. These are those who typically discipline their lives for the sake of godliness, as Paul talks about. These are ones who sacrifice and serve, as Jesus talks about. And so their days are spent giving their lives and their money and their time and their giftedness for the purpose of the kingdom. And then at the same time, you've got others who just sort of sit on the fringes. 
These are typically the last ones in and often the first ones out on a given Sunday morning. They've maybe been baptized. They certainly call themselves Christians and believe within their own heart that they are a genuine Christian. But you don't really see any movement. You don't really see any true fruit being produced in any consistent way. And so they just sort of keep the church at arm's length. They don't give much evidence as possessing a love for the brethren. The pastors and the elders are clueless as to what is going on within their personal life. And in all likelihood, they can't even tell you the last time in which they actually shared the gospel with the person. And because that is not something that really drives them. They don't look out at the lostness of humanity and view them with a sense of urgency. And they might understand at an intellectual level that time is always growing short and that day is drawing near for which everyone is going to have to stand before their maker and give an account, but that is not something that compels them. The lostness of this world is not something that captures their attention and doesn't factor into their decision-making or control the decisions of their day-to-day lives. And so they might be faithful to attend a service on a Sunday. They might sing songs. They might be convicted by a sermon from time to time. They might take the Lord's Supper, but they have very little interest, it seems, in investing themselves in any sacrificial way for the cause of the gospel. And again, they might marginally serve in an area that fulfills some kind of personal desire, but there is certainly no sacrificial service flowing from a heart of self-denial And so they just sort of float. They would identify as having some kind of personal faith in Jesus Christ. They might even believe that they and God have some kind of understanding. But the truth is that they just seem to remain the same year after year. There's no maturation. There's no evidence of an increasing holiness. And so on the one hand, you've got the radical, sold-out, faithful, passionate person, but then on the other hand, you've got the fringe, sort of lukewarm, nominal person whose life evidences very little fruit. They might know a great deal about the Scriptures, but for whatever reason, it rarely seems to translate into any true, lasting fruit. And then, of course, you've got everything in between. And so what is interesting to me is that assuming... A church is a biblically faithful church. You will always be able to find both extremes. No matter the faithfulness or the strength of the pulpit, no matter the style or culture of the community, no matter the model of church government or the involvement of pastoral oversight, no matter the philosophy of ministry, you will always have the faithful and you will always have the fringe. And you will always have everything in between. And so the question becomes, so how can there be so many different responses? How can there be so many different forms of professing Christians, so many different levels, it seems, of Christians? And it's always been a question for me because if all Christians, and hear this, if all Christians possess the same Spirit of God within them, and all have been made alive by the same gospel, and all are sitting in the same local church, and all are under the same faithful preaching and teaching, and all are surrounded by the same body of believers, then how is it that you can have some moving in direction of increasing faithfulness, while at the same time, some never seem to change? If not altogether find themselves in that slow but steady drift backwards. I mean, to my mind, if we're all Christians and we've all been transformed by the same gospel and we all possess the same spirit and we all possess the same measure of that spirit as the scriptures declare that we do, then how are there so many forms of professing Christians? Well, there are many answers that I could give to that question. It's not just a sort of black and white answer, but this is a passage that in certain ways helps to answer aspects of that question. I have always been curious as to how a person can seem so affected by the gospel at first. In fact, I have seen many weep and shed tears over the awareness of their sin and the beauty of what it means to be rescued by the cross of Christ. 
I've seen many give all kinds of signs of joy and passion and apparent faithfulness at first to the call of the gospel, but that within very little time, and even in many cases, a great long while, they begin to pull away. They begin to fade away from that former faithfulness, if all, not altogether abandon the faith. And so how can that happen? How can a person come and be so intimately aware of their own wretchedness and even see such a great need for the redeeming work of Christ applied to their account and come to accept that message and be baptized and join a local church and get involved in that church and sit under faithful preaching and teaching and sacrificially spend their life in service to the kingdom for years perhaps, but then at some point become incredibly apathetic or perhaps worse, enter into that slow, lukewarm drift that eventually leads them in their numbness to fall away. Well, Jesus gives some insight into this. As I mentioned last time, this is a parable that is typically used to examine the life of other people. But this is a tool in the first place for self-reflection. This is not something to use merely to diagnose somebody else out there, but this is something in the first place For the professing Christian, this is a parable for one who claims faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a parable for you and me. And so last time we talked a little bit about the nature of parables. Many seem to think that parables are what Jesus used to make himself clear or become a more effective teacher. But as we saw last time from verse 10, the purpose of parables, notice on the one hand, is to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God to those who've been granted to know those mysteries. But then on the other hand, they're designed to hide and conceal divine truth from those who don't want it. And so as I mentioned, we are now at a point in this gospel in which Jesus will no longer teach in straightforward teaching. He will no longer speak in clear terms to this crowd or to the religious people of the nation like we saw him do, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. Rather, from this point on, he will only speak in parables, but for the purpose of hiding and concealing his truth and as a form of judgment against those who don't want it. And because this is a stubborn and stiff-necked people who in their rebellion have rejected him. In fact, he is now beginning to near the end of his Galilean ministry. It will formally end in chapter 9 and verse 50. But he will have spent about one and a half to two years ministering in this small place called the Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. And so at this point, he has very clearly preached the message. He has revealed who he is. He's given that gospel call and extended the offer of forgiveness And yet in their pride and self-righteous arrogance, these people do not seem to see their need for a savior. In fact, in many cases, the religious leaders of this apostate nation have sought to accuse him. They've sought to kill him. They have developed hidden and nefarious plots to try and trap him in his words and indict him on false charges of blasphemy. And then beyond the religious leaders, you also have the crowd here, which just seems to be growing at an ever-increasing rate and following him wherever he goes. But they're only following him at this point because he has something very temporary to offer them. He has done many temporary things for them. He has healed them of their sicknesses. He has given them bread to eat. And so they do not follow him because he alone holds that message of eternal life. Rather, they follow him because they want him to... They want him to give them something very temporary, something better for this temporary life. And so he has made them aware of their sinfulness. He has preached to them the wretchedness. He has preached to them the nature of their sin before a holy and righteous God. He has shown them that no amount of works and no amount of religion and no amount of morality and good living can ever save them. And so what they need is a savior. What they need is the righteous life of another to be applied to their account. And so Jesus said that he did not come to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, but rather he has come to call the sinner. That is to say, he has come to call the one who understands themselves to be a sinner. And so we saw several examples of those who did accept that saving message of Jesus. Chapters 5 through 7 was that 
beautiful section in which we saw all those portraits of grace and some wonderful models of what happens to a person when they become aware of their sin and understand their need for grace and a Savior. But we are now at a point in which the majority of the nation will not accept him for who he is. They want him to be the Messiah that they want him to be. They don't see a need for eternal salvation due to the eternal guilt of their own sin before a holy and righteous God. Rather, they want a national salvation from the oppressive regime of Rome. And so they want Christ, whoever he is, to be some kind of military savior. And so in the light of such rejection, he now turns from straightforward teaching on the nature of the kingdom to now speaking in parables, but for the purpose of hiding and concealing truth. He has come to a conclusion about these hardened people. And so again, this is a form of divine judgment. And so in verses 5 through 8, we saw him give that parable. Remember, he pulls out into a boat with his disciples because the crowd is so large at this point, and so the water sort of functions as this amplification system for his voice. And so he gives the parable. He speaks of four soils, which, as we know, are four different descriptions of the heart. And you'll remember that nowhere does Jesus explain the meaning of the parable. Rather, he just speaks the words. He gives the illustration to them. But in no way does he explain to the crowd what he means by that parable. And yet in verse 9, notice we see that the disciples, that is these true disciples of Jesus, begin to question him as to the meaning. And so Jesus begins to explain to them that he did not give its meaning to the crowd because of their hardness of heart. He quotes from that Old Testament passage, they've not been granted to know the mysteries, but to the disciples who truly want to follow him as Lord because they understand him to be Lord, to them he has granted the ability to know this divine truth. And so what he does in verses 5 through 11 is he now explains the meaning. And so the imagery is easy enough to understand. This was an agrarian society, and so they understand the nature of seeds and soil. But parables, remember, are always using an earthly description to convey a heavenly or a spiritual meaning. And so it requires divine revelation. It requires God himself to unlock the meaning behind the parable. And so Jesus here, of course, being the very fullness of God, now begins to reveal that meaning. And so my plan this morning is to begin to walk through these various explanations of the soil. We're only going to be able to cover the first two this morning in verses 12 and 13, and then next time, Lord willing, finish out the others. But these, again, as we're going to see, are four different descriptions of the human heart, four descriptions of the human soul, and therefore four different ways in which the human heart either will or will not receive the gospel. And so this is what we begin this morning, and so take a look at, with me, if you would, starting here in verse 12. Remember in verse 11, he states that the sower went out to sow a seed, and the seed fell on these four soils. You've got the roadside soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. And so the seed here, as he states in verse 11, represents the word of God, that is, it represents the gospel or that saving message for the sinner. And so I told you that this is not an issue of the sower, This is not about the one who speaks the gospel. In other words, this doesn't come down to your technique or your ability to persuade a person and relate to them. But we also saw that this is not about the seed. And so we don't seek to alter the content of the gospel. We don't seek to alter its content or try and alter it in some kind of way. Rather, this is a parable exclusively about the heart. That is what these four soils represent. And so the first description here that Jesus gives is a description, notice, of the hardened heart. Verse 12, this is the hardened heart. He states, and those that fell beside the road are those who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, last time you'll remember that I started out with a description of the natural state of every human heart, that all humans in their sin are born dead, spiritually speaking. That is to say that they are not born with a natural inclination toward God. Rather, they're born with a natural desire to reject Him. And I don't have a time to lay out the full doctrine of sin or a doctrine of total depravity for you, but the Scriptures are very clear that all people are born into a state of sin. 
They are, in fact, born dead in their sin, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and that is not to say that every single person is as bad as they possibly could be. In fact, as we saw from Romans chapter 1, the idea there of ungodliness, as Paul talks about, is not this notion that ungodly means that you're somehow committing the most heinous or most wicked of sins. Rather, when we talk about total depravity, we're talking about the breadth of sin's presence, not necessarily its depth. And so in God's common grace, not everyone is as bad as they possibly could be in terms of the depth of their sin, but everything that they are in terms of all of their faculties are totally depraved. That is in terms of the breadth of what sin has affected. And so there is no aspect of a person that has not been affected by sin in some way, whether you're talking physical, emotional, intellectual, whatever it may be. And so they are soaked through completely with sin. And the result is that they therefore are not naturally inclined toward God. And so the idea of ungodliness in the scriptures, and specifically Romans chapter 1, is simply the idea of a person who lives out their day-to-day life, but without giving much thought to their creator. They're just not inclined toward him. So they eat his food, they drink his water, they they enjoy all of his good gifts, they breathe his air, and yet they just go about their life without giving much thought of him. In fact, as Paul states in chapter 1 and verse 21, they simply do not honor God as God, nor give to him thanks. And that, in its essence, is ungodliness. And that is, as Paul says in this passage, the reason, therefore, for why the wrath of God is poured out. And so that is every person in their natural state. They are in a state of godlessness. And so that is how God will describe the hardened sinner. And so this is not a person who necessarily is publicly hostile or proactively angry toward God or the idea of God. Sometimes you'll see that with militant atheists. But this is a person who simply goes about their life without reference to their creator. They go about their life without reverence for him. And so in the parable here, Jesus begins by talking about this seed which has fallen on the roadside. And so if you can remember the fields in ancient Israel where these paths that were worn through, or the the paths were these paths worn through the various fields, and so the sower would walk down these paths and just sort of cast the seed into the fields as they went. And so they were very old paths that they were paths that had been walked on in all likelihood for generations of farmers. And so they're very hard and dry and sun-baked. And so as you could imagine, when a seed would land on that kind of surface, it could not penetrate. It would just bounce off like concrete. And so this is a very good description to illustrate what happens most of the time when you present the gospel to the hardened sinner. They are not very receptive. You speak of God as creator. You speak of sin. You speak of the necessity to repent. You speak of the forgiving work of Jesus Christ, if they would simply embrace that forgiveness by faith. And yet, as you speak, most of the time, your words just bounce right off, right? The gospel is immediately rejected like seed hitting concrete, and so there's not a lot of tenderness in them. They're not wanting to engage with you at an honest level. They're, they're immediately defensive. They come back at you with all kinds of arguments for why they're not all that bad or why God couldn't possibly be angry with them. Most people think that they're living relatively moral lives in their own eyes, and so much like the Pharisees and the religious leaders of this nation of Israel, they do not see their need for a Savior They think that they're just not all that bad, and so when they stand in the judgment, they think that God will just somehow give them a pass. And because, after all, there are far worse people in this world that they could point to, and so God couldn't possibly be all that concerned with them, which, of course, just goes to show how low a view of the person of God they actually have and how high a view of themselves They have. They've not yet understood what it means for God to be an infinitely holy judge whose law and character demands absolute perfection. They do not understand what it means to stand as a natural born sinner before the eyes of one who is eternally pure. And so if they see themselves as maybe not being somehow perfect, they 
still assume that God is just going to somehow let him in. And because somebody told him one time that God is an all-loving and all-forgiving God and wouldn't possibly send a person to hell, except, of course, for the rapists and the murderers. And so this is the hardened sinner. This is one for whom when you begin to speak to them all the elements of the gospel and begin to declare to them what the Bible says is true of them, namely that they're in a desperate position and hurling toward that inevitable day in which God will require back their soul of them. And they will have to stand before him and give an account for their life. When you tell them all of that, they just sort of shrug. It just don't really seem to care. It doesn't affect them. It doesn't create a concern within them. And why? Well, because they are hardened. There is no softness within them that wants to even consider what God has said to be true of them. And so as soon as you speak the gospel, it lands upon their heart like concrete. And notice, because it doesn't even penetrate the heart even in the least. It says in the second half of verse 12 that much like the birds come and snatch away the seeds, so also this is what the devil does. If the gospel was able to lodge into the heart even a little bit, it'd be much more difficult for the devil to come and take it away so suddenly. But if it's sitting on top because it bounced off like concrete, the devil just snatches it away. There have been times in my life when I presented the gospel to someone and they didn't really seem to want it at first. But then a few days later, or some time passed, they did come back and want to talk about it, though they seemed to have no receptivity at first. It, it ended up causing them to think a little bit and wrestle with it. And, and why? Well, because in some way, that message of the gospel had lodged itself into their heart. But that is not the case with the hardened sinner. This is not a seeker of truth. This is not a person genuinely inclined to weigh your words and wrestle with what you're presenting to them to be truth. And the older that a person becomes and the longer that they live in a world full of sin and brokenness, then generally speaking, the more hardened the heart becomes. Perhaps you've interacted with people like that. I think often about Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1, where Solomon there commands the reader to remember your creator when? Well, in the days of your youth. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. And then he spends several verses there illustrating the bitter reality of what it means to grow old in a broken and fractured world. Or the older that you get, the more hardened you become. In fact, he describes there how the longer that a person lives, typically the more frustrated and set in their ways they become. You ever interact with a person who just seems to be angry or bitter toward life in this world? That is a person who's experienced perhaps many years of a bitter world. And so not only are you born with a heart that is dead in its sin, but apart from the presence of the Spirit softening that heart, the more hardened and bitter the heart becomes. And so the reality of life, according to Solomon, is that the longer that you live, generally speaking, the more stubborn a person becomes, the more hardened they become. This is why young people can appear so passionate and energetic and full of life and aspire to so many different things, but then as life goes on and the older they become, the less excited and joyful anything seems to make them. Life just has this way of wrenching down on you, and so apart from the Spirit of God softening your heart, the more hardened the heart becomes. Sometimes this is the result of a devastating event and a person's life where maybe they blame God for something or are angry and frustrated at God because they thought God should have done something for them. Because what we tend to do is we put certain expectations on God that God doesn't actually owe us or that he never promised to us. And because God knows no one owes nobody anything, in fact, anything that you have and are is nothing but pure and undeserved grace. And because if God acted swiftly according to what his righteous judgments demand of him immediately, then all of us should be judged and condemned already, should we not? And so the fact that he let you wake up again this morning in his world, 
That is nothing but pure and undeserved and unearned grace. He does not owe us the gift of letting our hearts beat even one more time. He does not allow your lungs to take in his air. He does not owe you his food that you do not make or sustain. And so he is a God of grace. There is no mistake about that. But the longer that he lets you live and the longer that you experience life in a broken and fallen world, then the more hardened the heart can often become. And so apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit of God in your life, making you alive to the things of God and making your heart desire that which it didn't formally desire, namely having an inclination toward God, Not only does your heart remain hardened, but the heart grows harder. So this is what Jesus is describing. The hard heart is the heart that does not see its need for a Savior. It's a heart that thinks it is without sin. It's a heart that thinks that it's not all that bad. It's a heart that in everyday life simply ignores or altogether rejects the person of God. They might pay their taxes and be a decent citizen, but that has got very little to do with the heart's disposition toward its maker. And so as you speak with a person about their need for a savior, it is not uncommon to be immediately rejected by a person who will not even consider the words that you speak. They bounce off that heart like a small little seed falling onto concrete. And so the devil comes, as Jesus says, and immediately snatches it away. That is to say that they won't even consider it. They won't even wrestle with your words, reflect upon divine truth. And so that one is relatively self-explanatory, and all of us have experienced that at some level. And so notice the result, end of verse 12. He says that they do not believe and therefore will not be saved, which of course, implies that the pathway to salvation is belief in this message. It is a faith or a trust, which is what faith means, but it is a trust in the word of God and the truth of the gospel. There are many who will not consider your words because they think that they're already safe. Most people you talk with, again, think they're in a pretty good place. They compare themselves to people worse off than them, which, of course, is always the wrong standard by which you should measure your own life. You do not measure your standing before God to the life of a sinner who is worse off than you. Rather, you measure your life against the plumb line of a holy and righteous God. But because they do not understand what it means for God to be utterly holy and without blemish, and do not understand sin, and do not understand what God has declared to be true of every single person who has ever lived, they do not believe, and so therefore they will not and cannot be saved. And so until a person comes, you'll write in biblical understanding of what they truly are before the sight of God every single moment of their life. They will not understand their need of Him. And so as you speak the gospel, there will be many times in your life in which your message bounces off of a hard heart. And again, it's got nothing to do with your method, nothing to do with your message. There's no argument or rhetorical device that you could employ that could somehow convince them. Rather, this has everything to do with the hardness of the sinner's heart. That is something very important to become convinced of. You spend your time wondering at times that if I had maybe thrown the seat over my shoulder as opposed to the side, that somehow the technique or manner in which I gave the gospel or cast that seed would have somehow produced a different result. But again, receptivity to the gospel is always an issue of the state of the heart of the hearer. And so the first kind of heart is the hardened heart. Again, not difficult to understand pretty easy to recognize. But then we come to the second soil, verse 13. And this is what I'll just call the shallow heart. This is the shallow heart. He states, notice, 13, and those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But these have no firm root, and so they believe for a while, but in time of temptation, fall away. 
as you know, the rocky soil is shallow soil, which means there's nothing in it to hold any kind of substance. And so this is not a soil with rocks mixed in it. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, this is the idea that this is a kind of soil that has a rock bed underneath it. And so as the plow would go through the soil, it wouldn't hit the rocks, and so you wouldn't know that they were there. But from all initial appearances, it appears that this is a good soil. And so this is speaking of a soil that doesn't have a lot of depth to it. It appears good on the surface, but it's just this thin layer sitting on top of a bed of rocks, and so the result is that the roots can't go very deep. And so it is able to hold a little bit of water. The roots can grow to a little bit of depth, but they'll only be able to grow so far. And so the seed in this case, unlike the previous is able to penetrate the soil. Notice that. And so the plant here is able to shoot up, as Jesus says, but the point is that it doesn't allow the seed to produce any kind of lasting life. And so the roots are able to grow down, but they just don't go very far. And so it is able to take in just a little bit of substance, a little bit of nourishment. It evidences just a little bit of life. And so the imagery then is one of superficiality. In fact, there's a few things that I want you to notice with this one. But first of all, notice how he qualifies it here in verse 13 with this prepositional phrase. He says, not only do they hear, not only do they receive, but they seem to receive it, notice, with joy. And it's a very key phrase to observe. They receive the message and they receive it with joy. And so on the surface, this seems to be the exact opposite of the hardened heart, right? Not only do they hear, but they also receive, and not only do they receive, but they receive it with a sort of emotional response. This is a person who's not only receptive and interested, but there's also a kind of exhilaration that accompanies their acceptance. But the problem, as Jesus says, is that they have no root in them. And so notice he says that they believe for a while. That is a key phrase as well. They believe for a while, but in times of testing, they fall away. And that phrase there, they believe for a while, understand that that is in reference to anything from hours, days, to weeks, to months, to years. There are some who believe for a while, but then will eventually fall away. And there is a key trigger for that falling away, and we're going to take a look at that in a little bit. But the point to understand is that Jesus is characterizing this kind of person by a superficial faith, but because it lasts for a while. Because as we're going to see a genuine faith or a good soil, as he'll say, always produces, hear this, a lasting fruit. They produce a plant that will endure In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 31 that if you continue in my word, then you are my true disciple. He is not impressed with initial responses. In fact, you should understand that initial reception to the gospel is no proof of anything. Many of Paul's epistles speak of how the true believer is one who perseveres and continues in the faith. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 23 through 23, he says, And yet he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And then here it is, if indeed, notice that condition, if indeed you continue in the faith and firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Many start out very well, but will they finish? That is the question. One of the great themes of the book of Hebrews is perseverance. The author there is clear that it is the one who runs his race until the end. It is a very... Key prepositional phrase there. It is the one who runs his race until the end that proves himself to be a true disciple. There are many who shoot up for a little while with great joy and great exuberance and all kinds of emotional experience, but then with time show themselves to be tremendously superficial. And so this is a person who hears the gospel and responds to whatever sort of presentation of the gospel was given. 
There's a certain amount of joy and excitement and emotion. In fact, there's almost a sort of euphoria over the whole experience. You see this a lot in conferences and at camps and certain kinds of worship experiences that are designed to draw out the emotions, designed to make people feel like God is somehow more present and that they're having a real encounter or experience with him. In fact, I remember one person one time coming and visiting the church and when I asked him what he was looking for in a church, he said that they were looking for where the spirit was most present. And I asked him how he would know if the spirit was most present present. And he gave this sort of vague answer that had something to do with being able to subjectively discern and see it in the emotions and the excitement of the people. He wanted to see how externally passionate people were during times of praise and if he could feel the presence of the Spirit in some kind of way, as if that's different from the experience of a concert. For others, you might hear them talk about a personal experience. This one is very common. This is one who is perhaps looking back at a past experience and putting all of their chips in, if you will, for hope of heaven in on that one experience. It is a time perhaps in which they said a prayer or felt something during a song or thought that God had personally communed with them somehow in some sort of personal or ecstatic way and so they could just really feel God's presence. And so the result is that they had joy, they experienced emotion, they had a positive response towards some kind of encounter with God or message of the gospel that was preached to them. Perhaps it even resulted in tears of happiness and some kind of emotional burden being lifted from them. Perhaps they were given the gospel by someone and there were hugs and joy and exuberance and so whoever gave them the gospel affirmed their faith because they could only conclude based upon that emotional response that this was the real deal. And compare that with the person who also hears the gospel and yet in a sort of stoic, emotionless way sort of finds himself beginning to affirm faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. They come to understand their need for true repentance and understand themselves to be a very great sinner and therefore need of the forgiving work found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so they just sort of quietly receive the gospel by faith and trust in the promise of salvation found in that gospel and then find themselves beginning that very long and yet boring process of turning away from sin and self but toward holiness in Jesus Christ. They find themselves seeking to live in true obedience and incrementally beginning to look more and more like their Lord. And yet never can they really point to a time in which they had an experience or an encounter or had some kind of emotional explosion. Never can they point to a time of joyful tears or a time of sensing God's presence in any great or experiential way. And yet, they continue in the faith. On the surface, which reception to the gospel was authentic? I'm not here to debate anyone's experience with God, but just understand that that is not determinative of true salvation. Your emotions and joy and experience is never the indicator of a truly transformed heart. For there are many who receive the gospel and with joy, as Jesus says, and continue for a while. But will they remain? That is the question. Will they persevere in the faith? In fact, it's not uncommon for a person to ask me at times if something is supposed to happen to them, if they're supposed to feel something or experience something at the moment of salvation or at least sometime after salvation. Again, the point of Jesus is to say that experience or or emotional response to the gospel is never a sign of anything. In fact, let me just say here that even joy or great emotional feelings about Jesus and the gospel that last even for a long time are never the distinguishing feature of true salvation. In fact, according to the parable... That may at times be characteristic, and hear this, of false conversion, of a superficial response to the gospel. 
which of course necessarily implies then that the absence of joy is not the indication of false conversion. There are many who beat themselves up over a lack of emotion or lack of experiential moments, but again, those are never the indication of anything. And that is not to say that you may not have an emotional moment or response to the gospel, but that should never be the test of authentic discipleship or true salvation. In fact, emotions have zero bearing on spiritual reality at all. In fact, this is why it is so important for you to develop a sound theology of salvation. Once you understand that all those components of salvation, namely adoption and justification and regeneration and union with Christ and baptism in the Spirit, so on and so forth, those are all objective realities. Those are realities that are true for the truly converted Christian, and every single one of them are true apart from any kind of experience. These are things that are declared true of you, not experiences that happen to you. And so it is not the feeling of great joy or happiness or positive emotional affection that necessarily gives the sign of the converted soul. Back in chapter 6, remember, it is not those who rejoice that are blessed, but those who mourn that are blessed, right? It is those who come to understand what they truly are before a righteous and holy God. And so what Jesus here is describing is that shallow or superficial heart. This is the one who comes to understand Jesus and want to follow him because Jesus has something very temporary to offer them. In fact, there's a pretty good description here of what's going on with this crowd that keeps following him. They follow him for a little while and even begin at Passion Week to wave all those palm branches because of who they think that he is. But by the end of Passion Week, they're the very same ones yelling to crucify him. He fed them, he healed them, he did all sorts of things like make the blind see and the lame walk, he even rose the dead. But the moment that he calls him to lay down their life and to deny themselves and follow him, they quickly turn course. There are many who come to Jesus because they were falsely told that Jesus would fix their life and make them happier. Come to Jesus, he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus, he'll fix your children. Come to Jesus, he'll give you the career. Come to Jesus, he'll heal your sickness. So people come to Jesus often for very superficial transactions. I'll follow you in whatever I think following you means as long as you give me the desires of my heart. And so they come to him because they think that there's something to get out of it. And so what's interesting is that Jesus says here in verse 13 that they follow him for a little while, but notice, until that time of temptation. That is the trigger. And why a person could respond to the gospel positively and with great joy for even a long time. And why? Because there's not yet been that time of temptation. But the word here for temptation is the word pyrosmos, which means trial or difficulty. In fact, in Mark's version of this parable, in Mark chapter 4, he says, And these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And why? Well, because when affliction or persecution arises, when affliction or persecution arises, and because of the word, very important, or because of the gospel, they immediately fall away. And that qualification there, persecution, because of the word, again, that is very important. This is the idea of suffering. It's the idea of trial or persecution, but specifically because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That is to say that hardship comes because you keep pursuing faithfulness. In broad terms, this might be persecution from the state, might be persecution from the culture, might be persecution and pressures from the false church. But the idea here more so carries the idea of personal hardship that results from 
faithful personal obedience. It's this hardship that results when you want to follow Jesus Christ, but all of a sudden it now costs you something. And so, for example, will you endure and will you be found faithful when because of Christ you still need to submit to an unbelieving and unfaithful husband? Or you need to lead a wife who only knows how to tear you down and fight you every step of the way? Will you be faithful when your children rebel and begin to threaten you in subtle ways because you refuse to do anything but establish a godly home? What will you do when family begins to mock you and friends begin to abandon you and employers begin to marginalize you and government begins to withhold from you? In that day, what will be your decision? Will you persevere and remain steadfast in the faith and because you believe in the gospel was something deeper than some mere emotional experience? Or will you fall away and abandon the faith because you thought that Jesus had promised you something better? That is the shallow, ruthless heart. A shallow heart is the one who fades because following Christ costs you something. This is a person whose profession does not go deep because their response was superficial and never established its depths in the root and the soil of what God called them to. Matthew chapter 10 and verses 32 through 38, a passage that you know well. Jesus here is talking to his disciples and describing for them all that was to come. And he says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think, this is a command, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies, hear this, will be the members of his own household. We keep thinking hardship's going to come from the state. And it might, but there is a far more difficult kind of pressure when it comes from within, when it comes from those closest to you. But he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross, an instrument of torture, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, but he who has lost his life, hear this, for my sake, he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That is being able to abandon temporary ease for the sake of faithfulness to your Lord. And beloved, there is no way you will ever be able to endure that kind of call if your response to Jesus was based on some kind of experience. You will need something deep and abiding and have a firm conviction over that which is ultimate truth if you are ever to endure and persevere in the midst of difficulty. Because following Christ is not something superficial that you feel in a worship service on Sunday morning. Rather, following Christ is a call to radical self-abandonment. And there will be many on that day of judgment, I keep coming back to this, because they said a prayer and thought that they had an experience and believed a very great lie who will stand before their maker and judge and hear those words in Matthew chapter 7 of depart from me. Why? Well, for I never knew you. And they might have cast out demons in Jesus' name, and they might have even prophesied in Jesus' name, as that text states, but the problem is that they never took stock of their life. 
They never examine themselves and ask the question of what is it about my life that looks increasingly like the one whom I claim to follow. If you're always looking back to a moment for the assurance of salvation, you are being dramatically misled. Rather, what ought to give you assurance of your salvation is not an experience or moment of joy, but the fact that your life every single day is in the process of conforming increasingly into the image of Christ. And so what is it about your life this year? that is holier than last year? Have you seen growth or have you seen drift? Let me ask you some questions. What private sins this year have you sought to put away? What is it about your marriage that has become more beautiful because it's looking increasingly more and more like Christ's love for the church? What forms of lusts and sins of the tongue and desires of the flesh have you brought under control and brought into submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Does your life evidence the fruit of the Spirit, that is, the fruit that will necessarily come if the Spirit abides within you? Are you a man or a woman known for love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all those fruits of the Spirit? Would the people closest to you and with whom you live and know you best say that those are characteristics which are increasingly defining you? And if not, and I don't say this to beat you up, that's not my goal, But if not, then what makes you believe that the Spirit of God, who's characterized by those things, truly abides within you? And if that just sounds like legalism to you, then you're not understanding. Nowhere does Jesus or the Scripture say, do these things in order to get saved. That would be religion. That only produces death. Time and time again, he will say that these things are the natural overflow of the one who's been saved. John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. That is not to say keep my commandments in order to prove your love for me, but rather if you truly do love me, the natural result will be a life of obedience. It is the natural overflow. A true love for Christ can't not produce Obedience. And so these are some marks. These are evidences of a truly converted soul. That is very different than emotional response. Because as we're going to see next time, the truly converted soul necessarily produces fruit. There is no such thing as a changed heart that bears no fruit. That is impossible. Life always begets life. A changed heart will always produce a changed fruit. But one of the greatest experiences that will test the genuineness of your faith, according to Jesus, is unfortunately hardship. How will you fare in that day? In fact, the Apostle Peter states in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 6 through 7, he says, in this, talking about hardship, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That is the same word there is here in verse 13 of Luke chapter 8. And why are you distressed by trials? Well, so that, so here's the purpose, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials have this way of refining our faith, but because they're God's divine mechanism for separating out the wheat from the chaff. 
from that which is authentic and that which is inauthentic. Those who endure well through trial prove themselves to be the real deal. But those who fall away, as Jesus says, because it's not what they signed up for even though they had an experience, but those who fall away on account of the trial prove themselves to be what they are. And if you are his beloved, you will be tested. You will be tempted at times to walk away. You will be tempted to deny your Lord because it doesn't feel at times like it's worth it. But in those moments, believe me when I say that what will cause you to endure is not a past experience, but knowledge and conviction over what is truth. It's believing in the truth and the promises of God, though you walk through some very difficult and deep trials. When your roots grow down deep into the rich soil of the word of God, that is what sustains you when the trial comes that seeks to pluck you out. And so this is why we spend our time seeking to know rightly the truth of God's word. It is not your Sunday morning experience that will sustain you on Wednesday. Rather, it's divine truth put into your mind and heart that will sustain you for the trial on Wednesday. And so there are many who will hear the gospel and receive it with joy and start out so promising, but only believe for a while. It's the most wonderful news and most wonderful message that they ever heard, but as soon as the honeymoon is over, and the excitement of something new and all this new community and all these new friends begin to wear off or the false promises of that message of what Jesus was supposed to provide for you never get fulfilled, then at first sign of having to suffer for that message, you will be out. And because why would you suffer for something that doesn't produce for you what you thought it was supposed to produce for you? Why would you obediently seek to conform your life into the commands of Jesus if it just seems to keep making your life more difficult? And because, as we often say, following Jesus just might make your life more difficult for you. But as we'll see, and as many of you know from your own life and your own experience, it is the truly joyful way, is it not? There's a kind of joy that is superficial, but there's also a kind of joy that is substantial. It's a kind of joy that's deep and abiding and becomes the very substance which actually sustains you in the midst of difficulty. That is the true joy. That is the joy that results from understanding the message of the gospel. It's the joy that results from having the Spirit of God abide within you. That one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. But do not ever forget that joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is an emotion built on something very temporary, but affection, joy is an affection that is something deeper because it's rooted in something eternal. And so while emotions tend to fade, affections remain. And so this is the hard heart and the shallow heart. These are both different expressions of Bad soil, the hard heart hears the gospel but rejects it as fast as they heard it, and the shallow heart receives it with joy and in many ways appears to be believing the gospel, but with time and because of persecution falls away. And so next time we'll take a look at the next two, we'll take a look at the thorny soil and the good soil, it ends well. But until then, use this passage to perform a self-exam. There are many who outright reject the gospel, and those are very easy to spot. But, beloved, the church is filled, hear this, it is filled with shallow soil. And so figure out what you truly believe. There are many who superficially attach themselves to Jesus or attach themselves to a church or a community of people for whatever reason, and they may even feel emotional about that, but you are never going to survive in the day of testing if that is you because your reason for coming to Jesus was not for something that he truly offered. 
What Jesus offered was the forgiveness of sin. What he offered was the restoration of the soul and the pardoning of that eternal debt that you owe. And so if you come to Jesus aware of your sinfulness and aware of your need for him to forgive you, then you are in a very good place because that is exactly, as he will say, where he wants you. And so we are out of time, and so we will talk more about that next time. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to once again examine this parable. I pray that you would continue to give us understanding even next time as we plan to finish out this passage. There is much to say and much to reflect upon as we spend our time dwelling on a passage even as familiar as this. And so I do pray by the power of your spirit that you would cause us to examine ourselves. It is so easy to always assume that passages such as this are speaking of others. And so may it land on us with fresh ears and open eyes to be applied in a new way, in a way that we may not yet see. And so in light of such things, we give you thanks as well for your son. And no matter the case, no matter who we are, there is always forgiveness to be found in him. That is your promise. There is no sinner too far gone or too far lost that can't be rescued by your son. Thank you that he was willing to take our place and live the life that we could not live and die that death that we should have died. It is a profound gift that we do not deserve. And so as we turn in song and now seek to remember the death of our Lord and the Lord's Supper, we do pray that you would be honored in the praise and the worship of your people. That is our desire, and so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.